0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 12th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. My guest, as it happens, is just down the peninsula on Stanford University has a new book out about refugees. We've done a number of shows about refugee books. We did one last year, an excellent show, I thought, with Ty McCormick, um, who has uh, a wonderful new book out about um, one family's quest to come to America called Beyond the Sand and Sea. It's an inspirational story about um, the suffering and perhaps in some senses the redemption of life as a refugee. Um, some of our shows have been much darker than that. did a show with the Irish journalist Sally Hayden on the what she calls the 21st century slave trade on the shores of the Mediterranean. Her book My Fourth Time We Drowned is a very troubling um, journalistic account of what it's like to be uh, a wannabe refugee in Africa trying to get to Europe. We've also did a show a couple of weeks ago with the Berkeley anthropologist Levi Vonk on the moral case for demilitarizing the southern border. He has a new book out, The Border Hacker, uh, written with uh, um, Axel Kirshner about uh, hacking the border in many ways. My conversation today in many ways brings together all these different strands. It's with a young... Um, Egyptian immigrant to the United States. Uh, it's called 25 Million Sparks. It's the untold story of refugee uh, entrepreneurs. And the author is Andrew Leon Hanna, who is speaking to us from Stanford uh, University, um, the area of Stanford just down the peninsula. Uh, Andrew, uh, congratulations on this book, 25 million sparks, the untold story of refugee entrepreneurs, bringing together the suffering of refugees, but also innovation. Tell me about this book. What is it about? It's about three female refugees who are also entrepreneurs. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, one clarification, my parents are immigrants from Egypt. I'm, I was born and raised in the U S so right. They're... Yeah. I, I actually meant that. I apologize. No, no, no you're, way. you're,
0: you're, you're a child of immigrants.
1: Yeah. They're the real heroes. They did all the kind of, um, risk taking and, and all that. Um, but yes, yeah, so the book is about, um, it tells the stories of refugee entrepreneurs around the world, um, through a lens of hope, power, and, um, they're really trying to tell a story of the hope power and beauty of refugees and it does throw so through the stories of three uh, women refugee entrepreneurs in the Zetri camp in Jordan um, they fled from Syria and their names are Esma, Melek and Yasmina. Uh, Melek is an artist who fled from uh, Damascus, Syria uh, during the early stages of the war and she creates beautiful art and uplifts a lot of children and, and community members through that work in the camp and and um, just actually graduated from, um, medical training in, in university in Amman. Esma uh, is a storyteller and, and a poet and an author who basically brings together children every week and even more regularly sometimes to her trailer to tell stories that are meant to be uplifting and encouraging um, for children who had dealt with quite a bit of uh, unjust lives, uh, uh, having grown up uh, in the camp or grown up uh, in Syria and having had to flee early. And Yasmina is a wedding dress shop and salon owner who helps bring moments of celebration to the camp around weddings. And then it takes a step back from those three stories and zooms out to uh, 20 camps and cities uh, around the world where refugees um, have dealt with unthinkable pain and tragedy, but have made it uh, been able to, through their um, power and and innovation and creativity, create joy and and economic growth in their communities.
0: You mentioned the zatari camp a notorious camp in jordan uh mostly i think for uh refugees from the syrian civil war heart-rending images uh for people watching this from oxfam did you go to the zatari camp andrew for to research your book
1: yes uh big help and a big shout out to save the children jordan um, which helped kind of provide access to the camp um, and the intros to the the folks that I've
0: most of our viewers, fortunately, Andrew will not have set foot on Zatari. Tell me what it's like. What kind of place is it? What was your experience there? How much time did you spend there?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, one thing, maybe this might be a bit of a tangent, but uh, so I'll tell you about my experience, but then I'll, I'll tell you another thought. Um, so I, um, I, the camp i mean i think nobody should live in a a refugee camp i think this is fairly um, i mean that
0: goes without saying right? i mean i don't think anyone's arguing that
1: fairly uh fairly straightforward and so there, you know it's an interesting thing when i was writing about my experience and what i saw because there's a contrast between the camp is still you know inadequate in so many ways despite the great work of of many humanitarian organizations and and uh, actually Syrian refugee volunteers and, and staff members who staff a lot of those groups. Uh, but uh, there is another side to it, um, which is you know understanding that no one should live in a camp and understanding that there's still inadequate healthcare and inadequate um, resources and opportunities. There is the beautiful side of it, which is that, uh, and not of the camp necessarily, but of the people, which is to say, even though the situation is not um, what it should be in this a, in a tragic the people are making it actually much better and, and able to be um, tolerated and, and enjoyed in some ways because they're so powerful and they're so creative and they're so amazing. And so uh, people like Esma, Yasmina, Malek and others who are not even entrepreneurs, but are just you know, re- people who have um, decided and, and been able to find something deep within themselves to continue pushing on and make sure it's a community of love and support for everyone. And so, while the camp is still, again, inadequate in so many ways, um, it's become a, a place that has, a, a, you know, thousands and thousands of shops, um, community centers, uh, and, and many other things where uh, refugees are, with just a little bit of investment and support, creating a home in Zetri. Um, And often, they also, you know, as as you'll read in the book, uh, a lot of the folks I interviewed also want to make clear hey this is a place like anywhere else you know I, I don't want to be treated differently because I live in a camp um, and it's not some you know e- even you know Malik talks about going to university in Amman and people saying oh what's it like what's it like and so there's some element of yes it's inadequate but also it's my home and I've made it a home and, and actually I should be celebrated for um, you know what my community has done.
0: What's the main message uh, in 25 million sparks, Uh, Andrew? Are you suggesting that every refugee has an entrepreneurial spark or they have different sparks and for non-refugee readers, um, you're trying to reveal the humanity of every single refugee, whether or not they're an entrepreneur, because they're all human beings?
1: Yeah, I think that the latter one is, is well said, I think there's a little of both, but the primary message is uh, more of what you said second, which is, uh, you know, my motivation was, you know, every person has wonderful power, beauty and dignity and deserves to be treated equally and portrayed equally. But often in the media and for many politicians, we tend to hear one of two narratives is how I say it uh, about refugees and often more broadly immigrants. Either, we won't
0: mention which politicians, will we, Andrew? Although we know all know who you're talking about.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, there's more obvious ones, but um, and often the the one the ones that are more obvious, we hear the villain narrative, which is they're coming to take our jobs and commit crimes, and you know, you know, it's the more dra- dramatic. But I think actually, uh, almost as insidious, or also not great, is is the narrative where. All you see of refugees is they're poor and they're needy, and so I call this more of the villain narrative. Um, yeah, I think you're very,
0: I don't know if you've <laughs> seen Tim um, McCormack's book *Beyond the Sea and Sand*, but I think the two books have actually quite a lot in common. Of course, what you're saying is, rather than coming to take our jobs, some of these refugees are in fact coming to create jobs. Is that
1: fair? That's right, and and th- there is an element too of even aside from so put aside the kind of economic value which which um, is a is a major point of the book um, to say that refugees are 1.5 to 2x more entrepreneurial than native-born citizens you know on a 10-year basis the u.s government found that um, refugees contributed i think it was 60 to 80 billion in, in net fiscal impact uh, billion um not million and so um and that's above and beyond the investment so there, there's a lot of economic value But to your point, the main message is to say, no, they're not victims or villains. These are just narratives that are told. Refugees are people just like anybody else who dealt with an unthinkable tragedy that could have happened to anyone and um, deserve to be treated and portrayed with dignity and deserve to be invested in and supported uh, for who they are, number one. But then also, by the way, it is a huge economic benefit to welcome and invest in them.
0: And the economic side is really interesting in terms of the book, 25 Million Sparks, because the background to the book is 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 particularly interesting, Andrew. You entered, I think, the Financial Times' Brackenbauer Prize, I think it was in 2019, a mm-hmm. prize which um, gives an annual award to the best business book of the year. I think you, people can enter it now for 2022. Mm-hmm. And you won the prize. Congratulations. Quite an achievement. You're a remarkable achiever on many fronts. We'll talk about that later. But do you see 25 million sparks as a business book? Or do you think all books about the world now are sort of definitionally both business books and books about humanity?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I I think um, any book, uh, so as far as the book, I would see it as some hybrid of uh, a human storytelling book. And then, you know, there's a, there's unique business elements to it. Um, So I would call it both a business book and kind of a narrative nonfiction, you know, public, you know, broad readership book. Um, But I do think any business book, you know, I was a, I was a judge for that same prize. And thank you for the kind words about that. Um, And one thing that stood out being on the other side of uh, seeing proposals is, you know, as you say, all of them need to have, Not all of them need to, but I personally and a lot of readers believe that um, it's much more captivating when there is a human narrative underneath the business side of it. And so I think those tend to be um, the ones that I think uh, have a lot of power and can reach beyond kind of the niche focus group of people who. uh, Yeah, it's a
0: good prize. I'm really impressed with it. Um, I think this year or maybe last year, the digital Silk Road, China's quest to wire the world and win the future won the prize so it's it's good on lots of fronts. it brings young writers. it enables young writers like yourself to, to write your book. did you use that fifteen thousand pounds to finance your travels to the camp? Did it enable you to write the book? Could you have written the book without the prize? It definitely enabled it
1: yeah i uh, I was in law school at the time was already kind of in debt so it would have been it would have been tough to to make some of the travels to the camp and to uh, Utica, New York and other places without it so it certainly did
0: yeah. So I think great kudos to the FT who uh, I'm a big fan. of. We've had lots of Financial Times journalists. We're talking uh, with Andrew, um, Andrew Leon Hanna, the author of 25 Million Sparks. Really interesting and important new book about three female entrepreneurial refugees from uh, the Zatari camp. In uh, Were they all from the Zatari camp, Andrew, or, or just one of them? Those three are, yeah. As three many. Syrian refugees. We're going to take a a short break. And then I want to come back and I want to talk about um, education. I want to talk about Syria. uh, And I want to talk about innovation in our new economy with Andrew Leon Hanna. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh recorded videos, uh not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube Page. So, whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We're back with Andrew Leon Hanna, the author of 25 Million Sparks, which came out of a a prize-winning uh, proposal that he put into the FTs. quite a remarkable young man, as you can tell from the first part of the conversation. Incredibly articulate, uh, graduate of Duke University, Harvard Law School, currently at Stanford uh, doing an MBA. So he kind of reminds me in some ways of another guest I had on the show, Jamie Beaton, um, who also has successfully navigated the top universities in the world is the author of a book called accepted it was interesting when i was talking to jamie in terms of uh who runs the world jamie said mothers and particularly his mother um andrew I- i'm curious you mentioned earlier that you're the child of of refugees do you explain your own remarkable success all these different degrees a book uh, and you're not even 30 yet um do you explain it in terms of your experience as a, a child of refugees from Egypt or is it just coincidental?
1: Yeah. So my parents are, are immigrants from Egypt. So um, they're just the. Right. Yeah. I apologize. Uh,
0: immigrants <laughs> rather than refugees.
1: <laughs> no worries. Just always uh, getting the bio stuff. Um, but my parents. Uh, yeah. I think they, they um, I think they inspired me in a lot of ways uh, in their journey. And, and I recognize the difference there in that. Um, They kind of uh, sought economic opportunity and and chose to kind of immigrate, whereas refugees are um, forced to flee because of war, persecution or disaster. So it's not I recognize it's not the same, but there are some similarities in um, the way that uh, immigrants and refugees and really any underrepresented group um, is portrayed. And it's often, again, in this way that doesn't really treat them with with humanity. And so um, I feel a sort of kinship with with communities of color across the U.S. and then also um, any underrepresented group, but specifically people who traveled from another country um, relates to me just because of my parents. Um, but when I talk about the book, uh, and then there was an element too, of um, I can, uh, my parents, uh, again, from Egypt and, and um, a lot of the book's uh, setting is taking place in, in uh, Jordan and they're folks who fled from Syria. So there's also a relationship there that, that felt close to me in terms of the Arabic. And I try to use the Arabic in the book quite a bit. Um, but really, do you it, speak Arabic, Andrew? Uh, I, I'm okay at it. <laughs> I wasn't good enough to. Uh, that probably means you're fluent. How many languages do you speak? <laughs> no, I just speak um, English and okay Arabic and very bad Spanish. Which
0: is a pretty hard language. So I'm sure your okay Arabic is better than most people's Arabic. Um, true. Yeah. I, I'm curious, you mentioned the Arabic element, um, Syria, of course. We've done a number of shows on Syria. And the connection between Syria and the Ukraine, we had the journalist, for example, the Wall Street journalist, uh, Wall Street uh, Journal uh, writer, Joby Warwick on the show, talking about his book about Syria. Does your experience at Zatari and your conversations with many Syrian refugees, does that give you more, uh, more sympathy, more emotional sympathy with what's happening in the Ukraine?
1: Oh, certainly. Um, yeah, certainly. I think, um, you know, the the stories that, you know, a lot of it, the book focuses on moving past the darkness of what happened in the war uh, in, in Syria and in other places. But it's, um, you know, it, it's all rooted in that and, and just the tragic events. I mean, now we have, uh, we when I started the book, it's called 25 Million Sparks because there were 25 million refugees in the world when I started the book. When it came to press, it was 26.4. And now because of Ukraine, it's over 30 million. Uh, last time I checked, it was 5.5 million uh, in just the last couple of months. So, yep, yeah, I mean, the, it, is, uh, it is unbelievable to think about your entire life being uprooted, dealing with the trauma of family members who you don't know where they are or who have already passed um, because of violence or who have you know had their legs amputated or other major surgeries. Not sure that they can get healthcare. Not sure where you're going to go. Complete uncertainty. Um, then, when you get to the new country, if if you can get there, there are many laws and kind of uh, problems with integration and not recognizing your skills and abilities and your credentials. And so, it's a million um, unbelievably unfair things that surround life as a refugee, and which makes the stories that I uh, of these entrepreneurs a million times, in my opinion, more incredible than you know, some of the ones that are celebrated here in Silicon Valley.
0: Yeah, you talk about 25 billion, uh, 25 million. Let me raise the stakes a little bit on you, Andrew. Um, Did a show with Rowan Cooper, um, British science journalist, How to Save the World for Just a Trillion Dollars. He's written a book about it. Uh, Could a trillion dollars in your mind, could it solve the global refugee crisis what would we what would you do you're a business student at Stanford what would you do with a trillion dollars if you had it and somebody said to you fix the problem of of
1: refugees in the world yeah and that's a great question I think I think my mind goes to two things first um the first is the main the the most significant problem aside from the creation of refugees refugees through uh, our kind of global inability to contain violence and disaster. Um, and I'm also not counting right now, climate refugees, which are continuing to grow, uh, grow dramatically over the next few years, but the current kind of, and already have started to exist. But I would say two things. The first is, um, the first is 0.2% last time I checked of refugees globally are formally resettled to other countries. And so the money that I would use, I mean, I think it's a moral issue first and foremost, but it would be great to potentially incentivize countries to begin resettling at higher rates. Only about 30 or 40 countries participate in the resettlement program. The U S has historically been a leader, but it's still nowhere near what it needs to be. So if they're not going to do it off of straight morality, let's at least provide some kind of incentive economically to to do that. Uh, And then second is, kind of what the theme of the book is, which is put the money in the hands of these folks because they understand, uh, they have four or five different elements for why they're more entrepreneurial than the average citizen. They uh, have cross-cultural experiences that allow them to understand different markets. They have the ability to take risks. They go 100% commitment because that's this is the only opportunity they often have. Um, and so many, and they have much empathy for their communities. And so um, I would, in combining Get folks resettled formally in new countries, so that the vast majority of refugees aren't continuing to be in this transitory life, and then put the hands in their put the money in their hands through incubator programs, investments, loans, and other things focused specifically on these communities.
0: Andrew, do you know the uh, Washington D.C. based uh, investor Chris Schroeder? I know he's very much focused on. Middle Eastern investment, I think he would find you interesting. It's not likely he's been on the show several times. He's an old friend of mine. I guess it's not likely that anyone's going to formally write you. Certainly no government's going to write you a a check for a trillion dollars. But shouldn't innovative entrepreneurs, I guess social entrepreneurs like yourself, shouldn't you be raising that money yourselves and fixing this problem? Because no one else is going to do it.
1: Uh, yes. I think there's there's a lot of groups doing good work. Uh, the Refugee Investment Network has kind of done a good job of creating a framework that helps um, capital allocators who want to support refugees think about what does it mean to make a refugee investment. Um, Kiva has done a good job, who I work closely with through one of my ventures, does a good job of providing zero interest lending. Um, but no, I think you're right. I think we need more leaders who are thinking about the disadvantaged and often, you know, again, um, a lot of Silicon Valley can be quite, uh, where a lot of this capital is for new ideas can be quite focused on, um, a more insular community. And I think the more we have young leaders who say, okay, I want to serve the least of these, the people who are equal and powerful and wonderful, but have dealt with the most difficult situations and deserve better. Um, and yeah, I think trying to somehow get that kind of capital into ideas that will either provide direct investment to refugees, provide investment in companies that focus on hiring refugees, um, and, and and any other kind of, uh, and then at the most basic level, refugee resettlement centers in the US have been, you know, kind of decimated um, under the previous administration. And so, um, putting money into those, and and you know, it's not just kind of startups and stuff, it's the people on the ground who welcome immigrants and refugees when they come to these countries.
0: Yeah, you were polite about Silicon Valley. People might use other words. You have your own startup, DreamX America, storytelling, um, being on PBS. What is StoryX, and 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 how is that getting the story out about the stuff you write about and experience in your life?
1: Yeah, so you know, building on that last point, uh, part of my belief is that a lot of uh, people deep down understand that people are equal and that they deserve investment and support, uh, but the narratives are, are unfair and, and make it difficult to see that. And so what DreamX America does through the storytelling side is similar to what the book does, which it tries to tell uh, a story of, of the equal dignity of immigrant communities and refugee communities across the U.S. by telling the story of three entrepreneurs um, in the United States including one during the COVID pandemic, which was kind of self-shot in many ways. It's kind of an interesting insight into that, um, into that and, and the kind of amazing work that was done during the pandemic um, by small business owners. And then uh, the economic side of it is we partner with Kiva, as I mentioned, um, to deliver zero interest loans to immigrant and refugee entrepreneurs across the country. And so we've done about $350,000 um, to immigrant, refugee and first gen entrepreneurs, dry cleaners, owners, um, you know, car service owners, home care owners, um, law firms, all kinds of things that help them uh, stay afloat during the pandemic and continue to grow.
0: Good stuff. Finally, uh, Andrew, I'm curious, there's a huge debate, as I'm sure you know, about the value of meritocracy in America. We had Adrian Waldridge, the economist writer who is very much in defense of American and current meritocracy, Daniel Markovitz, who teaches law at Yale, who's a critic. You're a you're a sort of a exhibit A of the meritocracy. You've been through all these top schools, Duke, Harvard Law, where you excelled. Now Stanford MBA, where you're a you're a you're a big scholar. You won a big award. Um, are you a believer in the American meritocracy? Does it work? One of the critics we've had is the university of chicago historian blake smith who suggests that there's too much wokeness now in the meritocratic ivy league there's a little bit of wokeness perhaps in you but you don't seem dominantly woke are you are you a believer in the american meritocracy does it work are you
1: the model of it um well i have a lot of thoughts on that i think on the woke side i think um I think that's become just kind of a buzzword that's just become a problem um, because I think a lot of what's underlying what people are calling woke is wanting to be more inclusive and respectful of, of different groups, whether it's different you know ethnicities or backgrounds or races or, or genders. And so I think all of that is good stuff. But then where woke becomes kind of the buzzword is when it's canceling and, and you know, t- putting people as, as beyond redemption because they said something wrong, which, of course, is not a good thing but what's underlying it is all good things like let's make a more inclusive community let's be careful about how we talk about people and tell stories um so that's kind of how I see that um in case that's helpful um and then as far as uh, meritocracy I think I um was able to reach these kind of schools and other things because I had an incredible family and an incredible uh, and, and by incredible family, I mean both who they are, but then also incredible privilege, which is, um, you know, my, my you know, I grew up comfortable. I grew up very comfortable. I was able to, you know, go to, go to great public schools in Jacksonville. Um, and I had support of, of people in my church community and my friends. And so I was the beneficiary of a lot of things that a lot of people in the United States don't get a fraction of. And so... Um, meritocracy in the U S there is something there and it, and it has, and I'm a beneficiary of it to some degree of that system where you can, you know, apply to these schools and get in. But at the same time, it things, a lot of things have to go right and too many things have to go right. And for folks who start on the low income side of things, uh, it's not, it is, uh, it is extremely unlikely. I think it's less than, you know, a fraction of a percentage or, or less than, you know, only a couple percentage points of school of folks at the top universities came from the lowest quintile economically. So I don't think you can say that we have the meritocracy that we deserve and that we talk about uh, when when that's the case. And then, you know, more close to home with these folks I'm working with, uh, immigrant refugee entrepreneurs just needed, you know, there was a very high closure rates during the pandemic. And all they needed was a few thousand dollars to stay afloat. But the kind of discriminatory uh, elements of the banking system, the lack of access to networks, you know, didn't allow that to happen. And so a lot of people's entire livelihoods closed down because of the because of the pandemic. And so I don't think we can say it's a meritocracy because people who start with difficult life situations are very rarely getting uh, to a point where they're comfortable and they can retire with dignity. And so while, yes. there's, while there's some it's- element of it, it's not enough.
0: Good stuff from Andrew
1: Leon Hanna,
0: the author. Uh, important new book. He's a major figure, important voice. We're going to hear, be hearing a lot more about him. His first book, 25 Million Sparks The Untold Story of Refugee Entrepreneurs, is just out. Well worth reading. Congratulations, uh, Andrew. And then finally, um, who's in charge, Andrew Leon Hanna, in May 2022? Who runs the world? You have an interesting perspective both
1: from Stanford and from Zatari. Who's in charge these days, Andrew? I think it is a lot of the people who are completely ignored in our local communities who are um, teaching, cleaning, um, you know, providing care for the elderly, uh, providing care for those who are sick. I think it's the people who are truly running the world and who make the biggest impact in my mind are the ones who are the least celebrated.